0: All right, um, so if you guys want to turn in your hymnals to – are there even hymnals in here? I know there's the place for them. Okay, well, anyway, i got a few quick announcements for you, and then we'll pray and we'll get started. Um, So I should have had this started. Okay, so we have free market coming up on November 7th, and if you don't know what that is, we collect clothing donations, small appliances, um, just kind of anything – That you don't need, that you would kind of give to a friend, like something that's not tore up or in awful condition, um, that other people could use. And we just kind of collect it to one place and pass it out to whoever needs it in the community. Um, So that's going to be November 7th, and Autumn wanted me to remind everybody that the last day for donations is October 25th. Um, So if you have donations, please get that to me, Stephen, Autumn, Dave, Kelly, Allie, AJ, Ryan, anybody you see up on stage. Um, and we will take care of it for you. Um, Also, uh, we have been told of a need in a local ministry um, called Cradle. Um, From what I've been told, it's a pregnancy resource center um, for people who may need some help um, with that, and they are in need of volunteers. So if you're interested in helping with that, find David Dowdy. He knows um, more about it than I do. Um, And also... Autumn wanted me to remind everybody that we need nursery volunteers, so if that's something you're interested in, get a hold of her. Um, so I'll pray, Jim will put on music, and we'll get started. Cook out. Cook out next Monday at 5.30 at 706 Campbell Avenue. It is like on the other side of that field. Yeah, across from it, yeah. It's crazy, I live so close to here now. <laughs> um All right, so I'll go ahead and pray, and we'll get started. No one told me that one. Okay, Um, so if you have not locked your car, or you've left, like, anything kind of valuable um, out in plain sight, um, you may just kind of want to go out and check, make sure, um, because, I mean, it is the East End. Awesome. All right, so I'll go ahead and pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for this time that we come together. We thank you for this new space that we have. Um, We thank you for allowing us to come together to worship you um, together as a family, and we ask that you be with us, be with Dave as he delivers the message, and open our ears to hear what you want us to hear this evening, and open our hearts to worship you in the way you want to be worshipped. We thank you, Father, for all of these great things that you've done for us. In Christ's name, amen. What's up, Revolution? do it again. That was
1: lame. I know we're in like a traditional church, where we can get a little bit louder. What's up, Revolution? (laughs) All right. That was cool. So in light of us being in a more traditional setting, uh, today I decided to go to a Baptist church this morning to worship. And then afterwards, like a true Baptist, I went to KFC with Dustin. Yes. Thank you. Preach the word and eat the bird. That's what they say. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That was awesome. It was really cool. Um, I don't know why I wanted to lead off with that. Is I just wanted to let you know I feel like a real Baptist today, even though this isn't a Baptist church. This is a non-denominational church. But anyway, uh, I'm pumped to be here. Right? This is this looks pretty cool. Uh, I have a pulpit now. It, yeah, this is means nothing to you guys. I want a big like oak like wooden one with like some sides where like I can really chanter like my inner traditionalist and just beat the side of it and like start screaming. And you guys ever seen that guy? Like you ever seen that preacher before? That's what I want to be. Uh, but it's not, not going to do that. Um, but, alright, so, who's heard about the blood moon thing? It's this evening, I hope you're all ready. Um, all right, there's a lot being said about the end times right now. Uh, stuff about blood moons and Israel and Jewish holidays and all that. Uh, just a bunch of crazy stuff going on right now. Um, and lots of people are talking about that and trying to predict when or around when that the return of Christ is going to take place And the big question that everyone asks themselves is, is the end nigh? Right? (laughs) Like the homeless dude with the sign you always see on the movies, the end is nigh. I always think that's funny. Um, But the question is, when is Jesus going to come back? That's a question that everyone wants to know right now, or it seems like it. And I'll just shoot straight with you. Um, in, In my opinion, this kind of speculation that you're seeing and these kinds of books that are being sold to try to predict this kind of thing is just garbage. It's just garbage speculation. It's nothing more than a ploy to get Christians to, that are somewhat gullible or just want to believe anything um, to buy a lot of books, right? And to scare people that aren't Christians into coming to church, and it's effective. Um, John Hagee has made a lot of money this year. Um, Right? And it's effective to scare people into coming to church, and your attendance might pop up for a short season. But in all, I, I feel like it's a, a waste of time to, to to have, like, all this conjecture about when Christ is going to return. Um, but I do remember, and some of you will too, uh, you guys remember, like, the same thing going on in, like, 1999, 2000, especially with the Left Behind books? Oh, who remembers those? Yeah, like, cha-ching, like, they made movies off those things. Like, good for whoever wrote that. Bad theology, but, like, good for them. They're probably rich now. Um, All right, but the Left Behind book series, better yet, does anyone remember the Left Behind series for kids? Yeah, raise your hand. Did anyone? Oh, man, some of us should have went to the same church growing up, right? Like, those books scared the crap out of me, (laughs) like, if we're going to be completely honest. I remember always thinking about the rapture um, and, and, and being scared to death that Jesus was coming back, like, like that he was some like divine boogeyman that was out to get me. And like, I was, always remember like being like nine years old, like how could anyone be excited about Jesus coming back? This is terrifying. There's like, like I don't know, anyone else um, remember coming home from school and you see your mom's car in the driveway and then you come in and you can't find her? <laughs> anyone remember that? <laughs> and he was like, oh man, I missed it. Now the Antichrist is coming, and I'm, I'm, I'm screwed. What have I done? Right? I, I, that happened to me. And then mom's like outside in the garden, like in the backyard or something like that. And you're like, oh, thank you, Lord, there's still time. Um, <laughs> I remember thinking that kind of stuff, right? But now I'll, I'll shoot straight with you again. For various theological reasons, I don't personally buy into the whole left behind, John Hagee version of the rapture and Jesus' second coming. Um, just shooting straight with you. If you want to Google it, it's this thing called amillennialism. If you feel like being a theology nerd, Google it. You'll learn something, even if you disagree with it, and you don't have to agree with me on these things to go to revolution or be a member. We don't even do membership really here. Um, But I will say this. Uh, For what I just said, I do very much believe that Jesus is going to return. All Christians believe that Jesus is going to return. And that's because the Bible teaches it, and that's what we believe. If the Bible says it, we believe it. If the Bible doesn't say it... We're not going to speak too much. Um, and so let's, we're going to look at a couple of passages just real quick before we hop into the, the gospel of Luke um, that affirm and explain what it's going to be like whenever Jesus returns. So to affirm it, we go to Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. And we see Luke wrote this. It's like Jesus has ascended into heaven, and the disciples, his followers, are looking up still and says, As they strained to see him, this is Jesus, rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. These are angels. And they said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Right. So, boom, there it is. It's it's in multiple places. We're going to see another place in Luke this evening. But Jesus is going to return. He ascended into heaven, and he's going to descend from heaven to earth at some point in the future. Um, And then we're going to go to Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16 to see what's this return of Jesus going to be like. What's Jesus going to be like at his return? John wrote this in Revelation. Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. This is like a war horse. Its rider's name was Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. So this is a, a judge, Jesus. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And a name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. So Jesus is going to return and whenever he returns he's returning as a judge. The Bible tells us that the first time that Jesus came, he came to be a suffering servant and to redeem people from their penalty for sin by suffering it for them on the cross, absorbing God's wrath for them. But whenever he returns, he's returning as a judge to judge who was faithful to Jesus, who had their faith in Jesus and who did not. And those who aren't will be utterly destroyed and wiped out. That's the reality. Christians have affirmed this truth that Jesus is coming back to judge the world since the beginning of Christianity and that he's going to come back and judge and he's going to reward his people that believed in him, were faithful to him with eternal life and he was going to utterly punish in hell those who refused to believe in him. So this is something that's central to our faith. right? The promised return of the Lord Jesus. We have a lot of hope in this that Jesus is going to return and he's going to right all wrongs and he's going to establish peace and he's going to wipe out sin. This, this is huge for us. Um, And I just want to affirm that to you all before we go any further uh, this evening. But, fun fact, we're not talking about the rapture this evening or the Antichrist, which a lot of people have been talking about because the Pope's here. You can feel how you want about that. Um, uh, Or anything like that this evening necessarily. That's not the point of the parable that we're looking at in Luke. Remember, we're doing this series in Luke called, Did Jesus Really Say That?, So, I just wanted to get our minds, get it in our minds that Jesus promises to return and he's going to end the rebellion against him and judge and reward, Um, and that he's going to come back and rule and reign as king of all and ultimately establish peace and end sin and in everything that is not perfect. But the question for us, I think, is knowing this information, knowing these truths about Christ's return, how should we be living? Right, in light of the imminent return of Jesus, what should we be doing? What does Jesus expect from those who profess to have faith in him? Right, so throughout this chapter, chapter 12 of Luke is where we're going to be this evening. Um, if you want to turn in those blue Bibles, we actually have lights in here. Feel free. It's going to be on the projector. It's not behind me anymore, so this is fun. It's over there now. Uh, I didn't know that. Uh, <laughs> Um, and those blue Bibles, actually, if you're new here or and you don't have a Bible or the Bible you have is hard to understand, those blue Bibles in the backs of your pews, um, those are for you to take home. That is our gift to you. But throughout this chapter, throughout chapter 12 of Luke, we see Jesus calling believers time and time again to set our focus on the eternal, on what really matters, to not become sidetracked with the here and now. We see Jesus telling us to not fear the opinions of men or fear what men can do to us, even though men can physically kill us Uh, possibly for our faith in Christ, or we might become socially ostracized for our faith in Christ, Um, but that we should focus on fearing God and not them because God is the one who ultimately decides where we spend eternity at and that life here is just a little blip. So we should be faithful to God. We should stand in awe of who God is more than we should fear men. And then we see Jesus last week we talked about this story of a rich man And Jesus' point of that whole parable was that we should not be so focused on being content and comfortable here that we forget the reality that there is an eternity waiting, and that we should take the things that he gives us and do what he wants us to do, to care for the poor if we have an abundance, that we should live with an eye on eternity. That's the whole point of this chapter. Um, And living with an eye on eternity, that this life is not all that there is, that's going to dictate what we do now. Um, And Jesus is going to follow that up now. But this time he's going to talk about, like I said, how we're going to live, how we're supposed to live in light of knowing that he will come again. So tonight we're going to see that Jesus gives responsibilities to us. He entrusts us with commands um, that he, he expects us to carry out. And that fun fact, just, I wasn't going to say this, um, Jewish culture, what Jesus lived in, commands, the words mitzvah, like you hear like bar mitzvah, like this mitzvah, um, these commands... Uh, And mitzvah carries this connotation of, it's not just a command, because we don't like that word in English, it carries some bad connotations for us, like someone's whipping you over the back to make you obey. Mitzvah carries this idea that's like, I have the privilege to to obey these commands. Um, I've been entrusted with these things. So Jesus gives us commands and responsibilities to us, and he desires us to live faithful lives that he's called us to. That's what we're going to see this evening. And we're going to see that if we have genuine faith in Christ, we will be faithful stewards of those responsibilities. That our words, just a mere profession of faith, means nothing. Coming to church weekly means nothing. Real faith is going to be evidenced by what we do. But then we're also going to see that, as always, Jesus is not a hard master. And he extends grace to us in our failures every day. And he's full of mercy to the repentant. And he always loves those who seek him and try to follow him. But at the same time, he punishes severely those who reject him. So, without any more, uh, we're going to go to Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 40. And then we're going to hit the second half of this, 41 through 48 later. So let's check this out. Luke writes that Jesus said this. Be dressed for service and keep your lamps burning, as though you were waiting for your master to return from the wedding feast. Then you will be ready to open the door and let him in the moment he arrives and knocks. The servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. I tell you the truth, he himself will seat them, put on an apron, and serve them as they sit and eat. He may come in the middle of the night or just before dawn, but whenever he comes, he will reward the servants who are ready. Understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. So right off the bat, Jesus starts with this parable. And a parable is a story that's meant to teach us some eternal reality. So Jesus is trying to convey a message to us. And he's talking about his second coming in this parable. And in it, we saw servants and masters. Jesus is the master. People are servants, not necessarily just believers, but people in general. And Jesus tells us that we, as servants, should be in constant anticipation and expectation of his arrival. And that we're to live in a state of constant readiness because we have no idea when he's going to return. And he actually, he compares us to servants waiting on their master to return from a wedding, meaning the master could come back at any time. Back then they didn't have planes, they didn't have trains or automobiles, if you like that movie. Too old of a reference for most of us? Rolf got it. Thank you. Um, Rolf's always the old guy that I crack on. So that's saying that, that we should be ready whenever. They didn't have like time schedules that they kept really hard like we do, so if a master goes off to a wedding, he could return any time. And Jesus says that the servants who are prepared for the master's return will be rewarded. That the master will be just incredibly kind to them and actually serve them at his own table, right? And this wouldn't be common for them to hear back then, right? Masters don't reward their servants. Masters don't reward slaves just for doing their job. But this is how we know that Jesus is the master of the parable, that he promises eternal life. He promises escape from the wrath of God for our sin and reward to his servants who are faithful, and then Jesus goes on, I'm just trying to recap this whole thing, and then Jesus goes on, and we see the whole idea of be ready, driven home again, whenever Jesus talks about a thief, right, that you wouldn't leave your home if you knew a burglar was coming, like if the, if the burglar calls you and says, hey bro, I'm going to be there at 10, you're going to be sitting up waiting with a gun, telling him to get out of your house, right, you're going to be prepared um, for it, you would stay awake, you would be diligent, you would be ready, and in the same way, and with the same kind of urgency that we would be ready to meet a thief, we're commanded to be ready to face Jesus, but here's the question. I remember growing up and hearing people say, you know, we need to be ready. What does it mean to be ready? What does it mean to be ready? What are we supposed to do to be ready to face this king and judge Jesus? And there's a problem presented to us. The Bible says that Jesus is coming back as a king on a war horse with a sword in his mouth ready to strike down the nations for their rebellion against him. And this presents a problem for us because every single person in this room has rebelled against the king. Everyone in here has sinned. And if you don't think you have, like a couple of the Ten Commandments, have you ever lied? Yeah, that's rebellion against God. That's taking His commands and saying, I don't want to do that. You're shaking your fist at God saying, I'd rather do what I want to do. Or you've lusted after someone that's not your spouse. Or you've looked at pornography or or not just sexual sin, but you've withheld forgiveness from people. All these things that God tells us to do or tells us not to do. And we've rebelled and done as we've pleased instead of doing as He tells us to do. We're all traitors. We're all sinners. We're all deserving of Jesus to come and strike us down and then throw his wrath and hell on us for all of eternity because we have ignored him. We've not loved him as a master like we should have. So, on our own, we are not ready to face the king. We're not. We are all traitors guilty of treason, and the, and the penalty for treason is death. We all deserve hell. So, what are we going to do? Can we hide? Right? Like, we're supposed to be like this doomsday people that are ready for the end of the world. Like, build a bunker. You ever watch those TV shows? Those are fun. Um, like, do we build a bunker? What are we supposed to do? The Bible tells us that we can't hide from judgment. We cannot hide from the wrath of God by ourselves. The, the Bible actually says whenever Christ returns... That people will be begging the hills and the mountains to fall on them and hide them from God. And they won't. Even if the mountains fell on them, God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-seeing. He is everywhere. You can't hide from His wrath. We can't escape judgment. But where can we hide? We have nowhere to run to. But Jesus tells us this, that we can hide in Him. There's one place for us to hide. And I think that the hymn, some of you guys are into hymns, I am. The old hymn, Rock of Ages, I think hits that beautifully. It says, Rock of Ages, talking about Jesus. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. We're supposed to hide in Christ. He says that he's been split open, he's been cleft for us so that we can hide in him and his righteousness. So this king who who has every right to throw damnation on us for eternity grants us amnesty. He gives us free pardon from our penalty for sin. That's what Jesus did at his first coming. He paid our penalty himself so that we can be forgiven. He lived a sinless, perfect life in perfect obedience to the Father's commands. And then in our place as a substitute, he went to the cross where he suffered not just a physical death, but he suffered God's wrath, God the Father's wrath for sin, this fierce judgment that we deserve for us. And then he was raised from the dead three days later to prove that God the Father accepted his sacrifice for sin. And Jesus says, if we will believe that he did that for us, he has no judgment for us because he has paid what we deserve. He has suffered our judgment and that God is a good judge and he won't make Jesus pay what we deserve and then make us pay for it as well. So put your faith in Christ. We hide in Christ. We are found in Christ. That's how we're ready for his return. That's how we're ready for death. That's how we're ready to meet him in general through faith in Jesus. And apart from faith in Jesus, we are not ready to be judged. Because we're all guilty. Right? Apart from him, we have to pay for our sin. And I'll say this, I don't know how many of you guys have ever been to court. Only those who know that they will be acquitted are truly ready for court. Only people who know that they're going to get out alive and free are ready to face a judge. The guilty with no defense. And the Bible says God sees all he knows we're sinners. We have no defense against him. He shuts our mouths whenever we face him. The guilty with no defense that we are apart from Christ are completely unprepared. So he says, Be ready. That's faith in Christ. But let's continue with this parable. Jesus is going to get more specific of what true faith in him looks like, what a faithful servant does, and how people profess, um, how people who profess to have faith in him are supposed to live. So let's move on, verses 41 through 48. Peter asked, Lord, is that illustration just for us or for everyone? And the Lord replied, a faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the servant thinks, my master won't be back for a while, and he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk? The master will return unannounced and unexpected, and he will cut the servant in pieces and banish him with the unfaithful. And a servant who knows what the master wants but isn't prepared and doesn't carry out those instructions will be severely punished. But someone who does not know and then does something wrong will be punished only lightly. When someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required." So after Jesus' initial calls for us to be ready for his return and put our faith in him, Peter wants us, or Peter wants to know, who does this teaching apply to? And it seems like Jesus doesn't answer him. I think it's really funny whenever you read, like, parables and stuff. Peter's like, hey, what about this? And it's like, I'm, Jesus answers him indirectly, but it's like Jesus puts his hand in his face. He's like, not now I'm talking, man. Like, it's what it felt like, who are you talking to? Well, a faithful servant. I just, No one else thought that was funny. Whenever I read the Bible, I I tend to laugh at stuff like that. Um, But to answer Peter's question, Jesus gives examples of what a faithful and what an unfaithful servant looks like. So Jesus is saying that he demands all people to be ready, right? Both the faithful and the unfaithful, right? Servant here doesn't mean believer necessarily. Um, It's a reference to all people, right? Um, Because Jesus is master of all, right? How there is a specific group of people called children of God that have faith in Christ, and God calls us his children, and then in a very broad sense, because God is the creator and father of all things, all people are his children. It's the same thing. All people are servants because Jesus is the true master of all things. So Jesus is talking to all people, both believers and non-believers, right? So there's two people, two kinds of people in the world. You guys seen those memes? No? The toilet paper roll, people that roll it this way, people that roll it that way. There are two kinds of people in the world. Um... Whatever uh, that, that and Jesus is saying, there are believers, the faithful servants, and the unbelievers, the unfaithful servant, and all of the servants, all people ever, are put into either one group or the other, right? But but how? Right? What determines the group that you find yourself in? Because no one wants to be in the group that gets punished. Um, no one wants to be in the group with the servant that gets cut into pieces. Right? It's not a verbal profession of faith in Jesus that automatically puts you in this faithful group. Um, we can profess to be faithful servants of Jesus, um, but anyone can say some words. Right? Big deal. Like Anyone can come to church. Anyone can say that they love Christ. But what we actually see in this parable is how that these servants responded to the responsibilities that the Master gave. That that is what dictated whether or not they were genuinely faithful servants. It wasn't just, well, yeah, I'm a faithful servant. It was, what did you do? So we see that the master gave some responsibilities to the servants. He said, feed and take care of the other servants. Um, And the faithful worked diligently, right? And the master could see it when he returned. There was evidence of this servant's faithfulness, that the faithful one proved that he loved his master, that he was a good servant, that he wanted to please his master. And that's what Jesus wants from us. All right, on the other hand, we're given multiple examples of what the unfaithful servant does. That for either spite against the master, where he just does the opposite and knows what the master wants him to do, or laziness, where he knows what the master wants him to do and just refuses to do anything, or for ignorance, that he was willfully ignorant and didn't know what the master wanted. That no matter what the reason is, that the unfaithful servant doesn't care about or do as the master commands. All right, so the big picture is this. The faithful servant is rewarded. And whenever we're talking about um, the end of life or the end of time as we know it, a reward is eternal life with God forever in perfection, in paradise, in heaven. Um, and the unfaithful receive punishment, which again, whenever we're talking about death in the end times, punishment is eternal hell and damnation, separation from God, in a place with only God's wrath for sin. So that's what we see in everything how we're evaluated hinges on the evaluation of Jesus where where we end up what we're deemed to be like you know does he count us as faithful Jesus says mere profession in him won't cut it he says that the servants are judged based off what they do they're judged off of their lives and our faith is proven to be false or genuine by how we respond to the responsibilities that he gives us i really want to drive that home but i got to get something straight here i got to get something straight here The Bible teaches us that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, By grace you are saved through faith and not works, lest any man should boast. Period. Faith alone, believing that Jesus has taken your penalty in your place and was raised from the dead. That's what saves. We are not saved by our obedience. This will all come full circle. I know I sound like I'm talking out both sides of my mouth right now. We are not saved by our obedience and we fail to obey every day. We all sin daily but we are saved by what Jesus has done in our place as a substitute, not what we do, period. That's the facts, faith alone in Christ alone. Now, that being said, there exists this tension in the Bible that a lot of us don't like, especially if you believe in eternal security, Um, once saved, always saved, or or you consider yourself a Calvinist or whatever. There's this tension that exists in the Bible that we really don't like to talk about. I'm just coming clean with you guys here. Um, That... That, and the tension is this, even though we're saved by faith alone, every man is judged according to how they live, right? One of the most famous verses for this is Revelation chapter 20, verse 13, where it says, and like the books are opened, and the dead are brought to, to judgment, and, and they were judged, every man according to his works. But how does that work? If we're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, and yet we're going to be judged based off of our works and what we do. How does that work? And it's this idea that if we truly believe the gospel, that we have been changed from the inside out. Right? The Bible calls this being born again. Right? Um, John chapter 3, if you want to read that, talks about being born again. Or if you're a theology nerd like me, uh, the, the, the theological term is regeneration. Um, Where you receive this heart of flesh, that that you've been drawn to Christ, that you've been brought to spiritual life, that at, at one point in time you didn't want anything to do with God, you didn't want to obey God, you did not find the gospel message appealing, you did not find obedience to Christ appealing, you didn't find Jesus at all appealing. You you didn't want anything to do with God. The Bible actually says that we were at enmity with God and that our hearts were stony against His commands and we wanted nothing to do with it at all. But being born again is where God does this supernatural work in us to cause Jesus to become desirable to us. Where God does this work to cause us to desire submission to Jesus and His commands. Where the Holy Spirit draws us to faith in Christ. that, That what we once didn't want which is obedience to God and faithfulness to Christ, that we now strive for that. That's what it means to be born again. And it's because we recognize how greatly that we have been loved by God through Christ. That God has extended this grace to us that we didn't deserve. Right, that is what being born again is, that we've been changed from the inside out. You know, the, the whole book of James hits this idea um, that, that we have to have changed lives, right, as evidence that we've truly been born again. Uh, James hits this whole idea that faith without works is dead, um, that you can profess to have faith, but if your life shows nothing to back up that profession, that your faith is false, that we must have evidence, we must have proof of our faith in Christ, um, That being born again and coming to true faith will result in us living differently. It will result in us growing in obedience. Or if you grew up in church, you've heard the word sanctification. It just means to grow to be more like Christ. And it's a process. And it's not perfection, but it's steadily pursuing to to grow to be like Jesus. The one who we love so much now. Because God has done something in us to make us love him. Um, the best way for me to sum up this tension is this, and Martin Luther said it. He said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And I quote that a lot because I want us to get that in our heads. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. So what we have here is two big concepts to wrestle with. Um, one, we're told to be prepared. We're told to be, um, be ready for Christ's coming, that we're to have faith in Jesus And then we're told our faith is evaluated by how we live. The response to responsibilities and commands that Christ gives us. We're going to call that stewardship of the responsibilities Christ has given us. Now, if those are the things that we have to wrestle with, I think the natural question that we all would have is, you know, what are these responsibilities? I would like to know, right? Um, That if we've been born again, if we have true faith, we want to know not out of fear, because I have to be so good Um, and I have to work for my salvation, um, and I'm afraid of Christ's return. But we want to know what these responsibilities and commands are because we desire Jesus. We want to be like Him. We want to please Him. We want to be prepared to meet Christ. We want to show that we were a good servant. We We want to be able, whether it's in death or at the return of Christ, to be able to present our lives as a sacrifice to God and say, this is what I did. This is my proof that I have affection for you, that I love you because of what you have done for me in Christ. And I have a few ideas of what those responsibilities are. Aside from the responsibility given to all people to repent of their sin and believe in Jesus, I think that there are three very broad commands that entail um, things that Christ has entrusted to us. Um, Just like the master in the parable entrusted his estate to the servant. And I'm going to get a drink. I am sponsored by Burger King. Oh, that was delicious. Uh (laughs) But the three broad things that I think that Jesus entrusts us with, the responsibilities he gives us. The first one, he tells us to love people. Right? He tells us to care for the marginalized. Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31 is where we see Jesus telling us to love God with everything that we have all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. And then he gives us another command. He says it's equally as important love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus has entrusted us this responsibility as his servants to love people. And not just like moderately love them, but love them as we love ourselves. Now let that sink in for a second. That is incredibly hard. We don't do that. We don't do that daily. We don't do that very well as a whole. If you look at the whole of your life, there are tons of places where we fail to do that. But what does it mean to love people as we love ourselves, right? Think about this. You would befriend you. Right, like you, like you want friends, you would befriend yourself, you would weep with yourself during hard times, you would rejoice with yourself in good times. We pray for ourselves, usually more than we pray for other people. We would forgive ourselves because we desire forgiveness, right? We would live, Jesus is telling us that we must live in a way caring for the people around us that reflects his love given to us. Love people as we would love Ourselves, So Jesus gives us the command to physically, relationally, and emotionally serve the needs around us, that he tells us we are to live open-handedly towards those in need, that if we have an abundance or we have an excess, we're supposed to be completely open-handed and willing to give our money away. And I don't necessarily mean tithing, but I mean, you see a need, whether it's here uh, amongst believers or it's a need out on the street, and we're in the East End and we have a lot of work to do with that, that we're supposed to help the least of these among us, that Jesus says those are his brothers and sisters. We talked about that a lot last week. He says we're supposed to live that way, that that's how we love people. He says that we're supposed to be willing to make ourselves vulnerable to the people who hate us. That we're to love our enemies. That we're not to hate anybody. We're to pray for those who hate us and do good to those who would desire our destruction. We're to love the unlovable because we were unlovable and Christ loved us. So he's entrusted us with that. And as, as I list all these things, I want you to do a, a self-evaluation Where are you at with these things? This beat me to death this week. Where are you at? How how are you doing with loving people? Extending forgiveness to people? Being reconciled to people? Living open-handedly and freely towards people? How are you doing with that? The second thing Jesus, or the second category I'm going to talk about, these aren't in any order, that Jesus tells us to do that he entrusts us with is he tells us to live holy lives Right, we just saw or I just I just said in Mark chapter twelve he says, Love God with everything that you have. And if we love God, we would obey Him and want to be obedient to His standards. And, and and Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, hits this same kind of idea. He tells us, Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. Right? He said that you have been bought with the blood of Christ. Right? So now we should strive to be holy like God is holy. So we see in Jesus' command and what Peter said that that Jesus has charged us to live holy lives. And what that means is is being holy means to be separated, right? That we're supposed to live in a way that is completely different from the lives of unbelievers, from the lives of the world around us. And this doesn't mean it's an arrogant, disassociating way of life. Anyone grew up in that church? Like, that's the world, and we don't hang out with non-Christians. I'm never going to the bar ever. I'm not encouraging anyone to go to the bar here, especially if you're, like, not old enough. I'm not doing that. I know how you guys think. Uh, right, but like, I'm going to completely disassociate with those people, and I'm not going to talk to anyone in the gay community. right? That's not holiness. That's, that's being a Pharisee. Um, to not get involved with unbelievers is not what be holy like God is holy, because we see God getting involved with unbelievers all the time, so that's not what this means. But living a holy life means this, to abstain from sin as best we can. That's what, that's what living a holy life means, to put to death what is in our life that God hates The Bible tells us we are to intentionally run from sin. That we are to fight temptation to the point of blood. To not give in to our desires. To not live as we once did before we knew Jesus. This means that as we look in Scripture, we look at the commands of Christ, and we look through the New Testament, and we see God hates these things. And these kinds of people don't inherit the kingdom. That we put those things to death whether it's sexual sin or whether it's arrogance and pride or or whether it's unforgiveness or whatever it might be, that we look inside ourselves as we look at the scripture and we say, I want that. I want to be holy like God is holy. Jesus has entrusted us with that. How are we doing there? Ask yourselves, look inside. Everyone has that hidden sin that they struggle with that they don't want anyone else to know about. God tells us to be holy like he is holy. This is something else he has entrusted us to be faithful to. And the third thing Jesus tells us, and this is so important, and the church in general sucks so bad at this. Jesus tells us to go and make disciples. He says, proclaim the gospel. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. He says, teach them all the commands that he's given us. Teach them how to obey them. So Jesus has entrusted us with his gospel. He's entrusted us with His good news. And He gives us the unbending. All of these, I might add, all of these commands are unbending. They're not optional. But Jesus gives us this unbending command to go and proclaim the message that everyone has sinned and the judgment of God is on them and everyone deserves hell, no matter how good of a person that they think that they are or how good of a person that we think they are, that they deserve to suffer God's wrath for eternity, but that God is gracious and gives us a way of escape through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Gives us, rather, the way of escape. Through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, that we're supposed to go and proclaim that message. Right, making disciples is going out and telling that to anyone who will listen to you. And then, for those who accept that, doing life with them. Right, he doesn't say go out and make converts. He says go and make disciples. That we would then teach people. We would do life. With them. We would show them what it means to be a disciple, what a faithful servant does. We would show them, you know, what it means to be holy as God is holy and to search the scriptures for how we're supposed to live and what it means to love other people and to care for the poor. That we would show them that in light of what Jesus has done for us. Now, how are we doing on that? I, I, I know for a fact because I talk to you guys, there's not a whole lot of evangelism going on, there's not a whole lot of gospel proclamation going on so how are we doing in that? Jesus has entrusted us with his gospel, and we want to be found as faithful servants. So Jesus has entrusted us with a lot, right? These commands are overarching and encompass every area of our lives, both our thought life and our outward life, the things we say, the things we do, the things we think. And Jesus demands full submission from his servants if we're going to be called faithful when he returns. In the parable, he says the faithful servant is the one the master comes home and sees that he has done what he told him to do. And the unfaithful one is the one who he comes and he sees that he has done nothing. So I see these responsibilities that Jesus gives people who would profess to know him and profess to be a faithful servant to him. And I can't help but to think this, that we cannot ignore these responsibilities. We cannot ignore these commands and then somehow think that we're faithful servants to Jesus. We can't. We can't claim to love and trust Jesus as our Savior and our Lord and believe the gospel and yet ignore his commands, be lazy, spitefully do the opposite, or willfully and unrepentantly disobey. We can't. And yet many do. They think profession of faith is. Is enough. They think coming to church is enough. They think that the prayer they said when they were seven years old at an altar or whatever at church camp, whenever everyone was crying, they were playing just as I am 150 times, that that is good enough. But they forget this that Christ is the one who evaluates his servants. There's the kicker. Christ is the one who evaluates his servants, and he cannot be fooled. He sees our hearts. He sees if we've been born again. He sees if we love him or not. And He judges our work when we meet Him. And our work is going to be our proof of our faith or our lack of proof. But many people don't truly believe this will happen. People don't really believe that Christ is going to come and judge. If they they really believe that Christ will return, that one day that they're going to face Him at judgment and that He has also loved them with such undeserved grace and extends this gospel message to them, they would live differently if they really believed that. And they would prove Or they prove that they've not been born again. They prove that they don't love Christ. They prove that they aren't true servants because they don't live any differently than they did before they began to profess faith. They don't carry out any of these responsibilities that Christ has given us and entrusted us with as servants. All right, but here's the thing. I know that I've I've been super harsh. (laughs) I get that. Um, But Jesus is being very harsh here this morning. His his words are incredibly sharp and, and strong. But here's the thing though, like, and I'm I'm talking about me now, Um, I know, and 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 this isn't arrogant, you can know this about yourself, I know that I have been born again. I, I desire obedience I, I love Christ. I fully believe the gospel. I know that it's not my works that's going to get me to heaven. I believe that Christ suffered God's wrath in my place and that he was raised from the dead. And, and I, I believe he, the entire gospel message. I love him. And I don't mean that I've just become a more moral person, but like my heart has changed towards him. I desire obedience to him. And yet I don't always live as a faithful servant. I sometimes, more often than I'd like to admit I fit in with the lazy servant, who knew what was asked and just didn't, just because "Mm, didn't want to. Um, I sometimes fit in with the ignorant servant, where I say, "You know, should I be doing this? Like, is this holiness? Like God is holy, but then I don't, I don't want to change, so I won't search the scriptures about it. So I'm willfully ignorant. Um, And then sometimes I'm the spiteful servant, where I say, "You know, I know God's told me to care for people, but I'm going to beat them instead." In spite of his commands, I know what he said, but I'm just going to do the opposite. And I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one in here that fits in with those people. We all get distracted. We all become too interested in this life, and we forget that Jesus calls us to be faithful to him, We become like the rich man or the, or the man who fears men instead of God. And we become so focused on being comfortable here and now. We become so focused on the opinions of people here and now. We get so focused on doing what we want to do here and now because we buy this lie that we must be happy here, that we must always do what we want to do here, or that we're going to miss out. And we don't keep an eye on eternity. We all become fatally short-sighted at times. And we don't become Faithful. We we fit in with the unfaithful servants. So here's the question. Is our faith actually false then? Because I don't always fit in with the faithful servant of the parable, is my faith false then? No. No, it's not. Not if you're not content with yourself. Not if you're not content with yourself. Not if this provokes us, this message provokes us to be awake and prepare ourselves for the coming day of Christ. Then your faith is not false. Right? Jesus gives these kinds of teachings and these warnings to, to his people, to believers, so that our hearts would be stirred by truth. So we become, people say, convicted, right? That we would be pushed and convicted to be good stewards of the thing that he's entrusted us to. Christ wants us to take his words in this parable and be pushed to remember that this life is short and that he is coming and that all people will have to give an account to him, including us. And then once we've been pushed and our hearts have been stirred by this and we've been under conviction, he then wants us to go and act accordingly. That's what he wants. So this message isn't meant to paralyze us and scare the hell out of you. Some of you see what I did there, some of you don't. That's not what this message is meant to do. It's meant, what it's meant to do is it's meant to wake us up and make us introspective, right? It's meant to make us um, look into ourselves enough to ask, am I carrying out the commands that Christ has given me? If you're a believer, that's what this is meant to do. It's meant to make us ask the question, what kind of servant will I be found as whenever I face Christ? You know, we we have all, and we all will still, until the day we die, continue to screw up. And we will continue to not hit these responsibilities perfectly. We will. But that's the grace of the gospel. Right? That's, what, that's what I can't get my mind around is about how gracious that this king and judge and master Jesus is to us. The, the, gospel, the Bible tells us that Christ obeyed perfectly in our place. So we're not going to be saved by perfect obedience. We're not going to be saved by being perfect stewards of these commandments. And thank God for that because God himself in Romans chapter 3 says it is impossible to obey him perfectly. It is impossible that these commands are meant to beat us down and show us how far that we fall short and drive us to find grace in Christ. And what's awesome about the gospel is that since it is by Jesus' perfection and His sacrifice and faith in that, that we are saved, that our attempts at obedience, because Christ was actually obedient in our place, our attempts at obedience are counted as actual obedience. Let that sink in for a second. Your attempt, because Christ was perfectly obedient for you in your place, your attempt at obedience, no matter how flawed it might be, no matter how bad you might screw it up, your attempt is counted as actual obedience in the eyes of God because you're made righteous through Christ, not yourself. That is grace. Faithfulness is not perfection. Being a faithful servant is not being perfect. God says we will never reach perfection in this life. But I'll tell you what faithfulness is. Faithfulness is the non-stop pursuit of more and more obedience to what Christ calls us to. That's what faithfulness is. So don't despair if you find yourself not being a faithful servant. Keep pushing to become more obedient to Christ because you have been born again. Because this gospel message has changed you from the inside out. And I want you to know this. Christ is not a hard master. I grew up thinking that Jesus was a hard master, that if he comes and finds that I've screwed up and I've not been perfect, that that's it. The sword comes out of his mouth, and I'm struck down, and I'm damned. And I'm here to tell you that's not the Jesus of the Bible towards his faithful, towards the ones who come to him and ask for grace and mercy. Jesus is not a hard master. He says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He isn't demanding perfection from us to his commands. He just wants us to pursue him more. He wants us to desire perfection, but he knows we're not going to get it. He wants us to desire him more, that we would pursue these responsibilities. He calls that faithfulness. He says that's what faithfulness is. And he is good to us, he loves us, and he gives us grace if we truly believe and we continue to be faithful. Faithfulness is repentance daily and and resubmission to Christ. That's what faithfulness really is. Where daily we look and we say, I've not been a faithful steward in this area or this area. I've not carried out this responsibility Christ has given me. I've withheld forgiveness. I've slipped back into this private sin. I've, I've done whatever it is. But then we turn from that and we set our eyes on what is eternal. We set our eyes on Christ and the grace that he's shown us. And we say, I want him and we resolve to chase him more. That's what faithfulness is. It's not perfection. It's daily repentance and turning towards Christ whenever we realize where we failed. So let these words that Jesus gives us in this parable serve as both an encouragement to the believer and a warning to the non-believer. An encouragement to true believers of what faithfulness really is and that Christ promises eternal life to the faithful that we just keep pressing on keep striving for more obedience to him and that our failures aren't held against us so long as we continue in faithful repentance and resubmission and let this also be a warning to those who have false faith just a mere profession or who reject Jesus all together let this be a warning that they would heed, that they would repent, and that they would truly believe, that they would truly begin to follow Jesus and be faithful to Him and begin to pursue Him. Because Jesus promises to punish the unfaithful as much as He promises to reward the faithful. He's not joking. So let's take this sobering reminder that Christ will return to judge the world and let it motivate us to stay awake to be diligent servants, to be constantly ready for action, to be constantly acting every day, to boldly love and serve the people around us, and to be holy as God is holy. Strive to kill the sin in our lives, and then proclaim the saving power of Jesus Christ to anyone who will listen to us. We don't know when Christ is going to come back to rule And to reward and to punish. So we cannot buy this lie that we have all the time in the world to act. This goes for believers and non-believers. As believers, we can't buy this lie that we have all the time in the world to act. We don't know if Christ is going to return before I'm done preaching, which would be awesome. Um, We don't know if we're going to die on the way home. We don't know how much time we have as believers to act. To begin to be faithful stewards, to begin to proclaim this gospel message, to love people, to to, to desire holiness and chase Jesus. We don't know how much time we have. And likewise for unbelievers, you don't know how much time you have to repent. You don't know how much time you have left to turn to Christ and ask for grace, ask for mercy. And we don't know when we'll die or when the return will happen. So Jesus tells us to be prepared, be constantly in action. But I want to leave you guys on, on, on a higher note. This is awesome. Right, so for as heavy and somber as that is, I don't want us to be afraid of Christ's return. Because if you're a true believer, you have nothing to fear. If you're faithful to Christ, you have nothing to fear at all. Right? This is not a scary thing for us. We, we should be in, in joyous anticipation. The Bible tells us all creation is groaning in anticipation for Christ's return. Because this is the culmination of salvation history. Right? This, is, this is the end. This is the end where our King, Jesus, our faithful husband, Jesus, returns to claim us his bride for himself. This is what all of history has been driving towards, is the return of Jesus. It is the end of all suffering. It is the end of all pain. It is the end of sickness. It is the end of death. It's the end of sin. Our struggle is over. This is the end. This is what we've been waiting for. The Lord Jesus is going to end all opposition against Him and He is going to reign rightly and justly and righteously for all eternity with us. And we're going to share in that glory that we're going to be with Him. That's the goal, man. We should be so pumped for this. We shouldn't fear this. This is awesome. But in light of that, let's seek the kingdom here. Let's live in anticipation of that world and do everything in our power to bring that world to a reality here and now. So let's be faithful servants to the God who has not abandoned us, who promises the return, who loves us, and promises us life with him for eternity. Let's pray. Father, you are better to us than we deserve. You are faithful to us whenever we're unfaithful and you just tell us, look, I know that you're not perfect. I know you'll never be perfect, but I was perfect for you. So just try. Daily turn from what you've done and put your faith even more in me and pursue me because you've been changed. Because you love me now. God, I pray that your gospel, that you've granted amnesty to sinners, that you've given us a free pardon because of what you've done will just pierce us and change us from the inside out and make us desire you even more. Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to be holy. Help us to love other people. Help us to pursue the lost and proclaim your gospel. Holy Spirit, dwell in us and set us on fire for these things. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.